tell you that together we are unstoppable. During this season my goal is to provide you with stories from amazing women and business owners which will help you to adopt, grow and exercise that entrepreneurial spirit and mindset that already exists within you. I hope these stories allow you to learn, scale and become more resilient. I hope they can show you how to build your dreams and open doors. Remember that you already are exceptional and you deserve to sit at any table you desire to be in. You were meant for greatness. So let's get loud. Own your today. Own your story. And let's build together a better tomorrow. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Transcend with M. And with us today, we have an amazing author. Her name is Jackie Abram, and I cannot wait for you to learn her story. I actually saw uh, Jackie on LinkedIn and I saw everything that she's working on and I had to reach out and I had to say, hey, I need to have you on my podcast. I need to get to know you. And she said, yes which is the most amazing thing ever happened. So welcome to the show, Jackie. How are you? I am doing well, and I am so grateful to be on your show. You know, thank you for amplifying my voice. I'm very excited to be here. Really, really excited to have you. And we are not gonna, you know, uh, go around the bush too much. We're just gonna dig in because we have a lot to cover here. And, you know, first of all, tell us, Who's Jackie? Where you come from? How did you become? Okay. Um, So my name is Jackie Abram. I am the author of an international award-winning book called Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. And, um, you know, Hush Money tells a very powerful story that I'm going to dig into with you. Um, but before we even get to that point, you know, you asked me a, a very valid question. You know, you wanted to know how I came to be an author and how Hush Money came to be. So, so let me just start there, Monica. To start, I, I never dreamed about being an author, honestly. Um, being a writer was something that was not even in my career path. It wasn't something I dreamed about. It wasn't something I thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know a little bit about me, Monica, um, you probably know that my background is actually in finance. Mm-hmm. I'm a numbers cruncher, you know, yeah. so as a numbers cruncher, you know, writing is something, you know, we just don't think about, but this is how I came to be a writer. You know, um, I had a lucrative six-figure career in higher education as a leader of finance that I was very, very good at. And, and let me just put emphasis on that, Monica. I was exceptional 
at yeah. my job yeah. in higher education. And I enjoyed it. You know, I, I had a career that not only paid me, like I said, six figures, which was enough to provide for my family. And, you know, as a mother of two girls, a single mother, you know, that salary was important because my salary was the only salary in my household. And so, you know, in this job, I'm earning this lucrative six-figure career. It's providing me with enough income to not only provide for my family, but to also pay my bills comfortably. And Monica, it should have been a successful career by any measure, okay? But it wasn't. Mm. And the reason it wasn't, Monica, is because as I was building my career, which spanned nearly two decades, so almost 20 years, I kept finding myself uh, becoming the repeated uh, victim of racism in the workplace. And Monica, not the kind of racism that you typically see um, reflected in a lot of those uh, books, movies, and, and TV shows about racism that occurred decades ago. You know, uh, during a time when it was more overt, you could easily spot it. Uh, people walked around in, in white robes and, and hoods, and you could point at it and say, yes, that is racism. Yeah. That, that's not what's happening in the workplace today. Mm-hmm. Modern day racism the racism that I experienced, the racism that so many of our people experience is not that overt, easily spotted kind, Monica. It's covert, it's hidden, and it's much, much harder to prove. And so as I was building my career, Monica, and working in conditions that are horrific to say the least. I suffered a lot of of racial trauma and you know a lot of people don't hear about racial trauma Um, but I suffered a lot of racial trauma that to this very day I have not fully recovered from Mm -hmm. as my career was repeatedly derailed And I was forced to start over again and again. And so, so Monica, if you can imagine for a moment that you are working in an organization, you're getting paid a good salary, you're good at your job, you're you're checking all the boxes on uh, being successful in your career. And then someone in the organization who happens to not only be white, but a racist person notices you and decides to target you, okay? That ladder that you're on, when they pull the rug from under you, both you and that ladder come crashing down. Mm -hmm. And so in my situation as as my career was being derailed and I kept being targeted and the rug continued to be pulled from under me, I lost everything, Monica. I lost everything. And 
when you lose everything, Monica, and you have to start all over and you make it so far up that ladder again, and someone targets you again, because even if you change jobs, even if you change companies, you were black over here and you're still black over here. And so you become targeted again, the rug is pulled from under you, you come crashing down again. And so what I have found is that, you know, for me, I could never, um, I could never sustain what I had because even if you made it so far in your career, all it took was for uh, one person in a position of power and influence who was a racist, who did not believe that you deserved to have that position that you held because you were black. And they then target you, but because of their power and influence, they Mm -hmm. inspire others to conspire against you. And before you know it, you are facing three impossible choices. You're either going to suffer in silence to try and keep your job. But Monica, I don't know if you've ever experienced racism yourself as a person of color, Um, but suffering in silence never works. Um, And so I tried that. It didn't work. So then I considered resigning to, to try to keep my sanity because Monica, as you're being targeted, and these people are not only killing your career, they're killing your, your livelihood. And you're finding yourself losing everything and you've got children to take care of, mm-hmm. you know, so at some point you just, you say, okay, I, I can't handle this anymore. So um, I, I'm going to resign to keep my sanity because in my case, Monica, um, as I was dealing with what was happening to me. I got so messed up in the head as these people were targeting me and coming after me that I considered both suicide and homicide. Monica, I'm not trying to be funny. I wanted to kill my boss. And I was so messed up in the head behind the horrific way they were attacking me Mm -hmm. that if I could have found a way to do it because I was so messed up, I probably would have tried. So unfortunately, a lot of our people, Monica, find themselves on that same ledge that I was on. Yeah. And I decided I just wanted to, to end it. I, I consider it suicide. And you know, you know that you're suffering trauma when you are considering all the peace and the love and the acceptance that comes with death that you can't get in life just because of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm considering suicide, And I'm just, and I remember the day very well, you know, I was at a place called Salt Creek Beach in uh, California 
And I was standing at the edge of the water and the call of the sea was so strong as I'm just unraveling and I'm in despair. And as I'm considering how I can just end this to have the peace that I need, um, I actually think God intervened, Monica. Mm -hmm. Because as I'm standing there, I get a call, you know, I've got my cell phone in my pocket and, uh, you know, my youngest daughter calls, I have two daughters. Um, my youngest daughter, Delilah calls. And when I answer it, you know, she says, mom, they're after me. And she just starts crying and pouring her heart out to me as I'm staring out at the ocean, standing on the sand. Here's my baby saying that these people are after her. And she's about to lose everything. And she's also a single mom. And I don't know if you have children, Monica. I do. I have a 10-year-old. Okay. So you know, as a mom, that, you know, it's one thing if you come after me. But if you come after my kids in any way, shape, or form, That's it. you've got a problem on your hand. So it was her phone call that picked me up out of the depths that I was in. Mm -hmm. And I told her I was coming home to help her. So I packed up, I left California, I came back to Colorado. And then after hearing what was happening to her, um, I pulled my other daughter, my oldest daughter, Deborah, aside. And I said, have you been experiencing anything like this you know because I thought I was crazy I thought it was me I thought you know there's obviously something about me that's making all of these racist people want to hurt me then I find out my youngest daughter's experiencing it so I wanted to know if my oldest daughter was because she never said a thing yeah and so when I pulled her aside and I said Deborah have you experienced racism are you are you being targeted by white people at your job? And I asked her point blank and she just started crying and she says, mom, they're after me. And so she's going through the same thing that my youngest daughter is going through that I'm going through. And I said, you know, Deborah, why didn't you say anything? And she said, you know, mom, everybody says, you know, as, as black women, you know, if, if we complain, we're weak. If we, if we cry, we're weak, you know, I, I have to be strong and, you know, I didn't want to worry you. So I talked to a few of my friends and they said, you know, I'm being weak. I'm just using the black card. You know, I need to tough it out. I need to develop thick skin. Yeah. And so, and so when I realized that my children were going through the same thing, I started talking to more people, not just black people, but people of color. And I started doing interviews um, inside of my uh, family, my uh, extended family. And then I started interviewing people yeah. in my community and finding out that about 95% of the people that I talked to, you know, they all said the same thing. You know, they said, you know, I can't ever accumulate anything or get anywhere, you know, because unlike white people who can get a job and they can see themselves in that job, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years out where they can project how long they're going to be there. They can build a retirement and a nest egg. You know, we can't have that because our, our careers keep, keep getting derailed. 
and we keep losing everything and starting all over. Mm -hmm. So Monica, though, of all those stories, okay, of all the people that I talked to, there was a woman who was dealing with the same thing, but Mm -hmm. she was able to not only prove the systemic racism that she was experiencing at her job, she was actually able to keep her job, something that is absolutely unheard of, Monica. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um, let's say you are a person of color or you are a black person and you are actually able to um, tell people that you are experiencing racism at work and they believe you, okay? They may give you a settlement agreement at your job, okay? But after they give you that settlement agreement, they don't want nothing to do with you, Monica. You, they're going to have you take a settlement and then separate from their company because they don't want to see you anymore. They don't want to deal with you. In your agreement, they're going to put a little clause that says you can't talk about what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to send you away because they don't want you on, on, their, uh, on their site in their organization anymore. Yeah. So you go away. So to find out you know, that there's a woman who um, was not only able to prove systemic racism, but actually um, keep her job uh, is just unheard of. And this was a story that she wanted other people to hear because she wanted to help so many other people in our black and brown communities um, learn how to not only fight the racism that they're dealing with at work, but survive the battle and win the war and keep their jobs. And so that's where hush money, how one woman proved systemic racism in her workplace and kept her job came about. So um, Monica, going back to my individual situation. So, you know, I got together with my daughters. My daughters are co-authors on this book and we wrote Hush Money, which tells a powerful, powerful story uh, about a woman named Ebony. Mm. Ebony Love the name. Love the name. So perfect. So perfect for the character. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Ebony, yes, Ebony is um, a young Black woman who is um, living in poverty with her sick mother. She's a single parent, struggling financially, trying to get her son back. And, And really, all Ebony wanted was a chance to live the American dream that for her was nothing more uh, than a fantasy with absolutely uh, no hope of becoming a reality. Mm. So after years of working dead in jobs, she actually uh, gets a job in an organization after, you know, like I said, working years of dead in jobs that puts her one step closer to um, realizing the American dream. She, she gets a job through a temp agency, and this temp agency places her at a for-profit college, okay? Hmm. 
And even though it's a temp job, it doesn't come with any benefits. Um, the pay is good at $16 an hour, the most money she's ever made. Mm-hmm. And she is really excited about this, Monica. She's over the top excited. And the reason she's excited is because, you know, yes, it doesn't have any benefits and it's a temporary job, but maybe, just maybe, I can use the skills that I've learned at this safe house for abused women to impress this college and they may hire me permanently. Mm. So she goes into this job and she gives it her all. And, you know, her hopes come to reality. She is actually hired. Uh, The chancellor buys out her contract with the temp agency and hires her permanently. So now she's got a permanent job that pays her $40,000 a year, the most money she's ever made. It comes with wonderful benefits, you know, medical, dental, tuition reimbursement. So now she's able to go to college for free. And she sees a light at the end of the tunnel for her and her family. So, you know, if you can just put yourself in the mindset of Ebony, you know, she's excited. She is thrilled. And this boss that she reports to is spectacular. Uh, He's a white man who really values and respects Ebony's skills. He wants to help her grow in the company. And, you know, he really honestly treats her a lot like the father figure she never had. Because he's so welcoming and he's so uh, good to her, you know, Ebony now does what a lot of white people can do. She's, She's looking at this and she's projecting out, wow, this is the best job I've ever had. I'm never leaving this job. I'm gonna stay here forever and I'm going to retire from this job and work for this boss forever. So she's excited. Yeah. But as you can imagine, Monica, that was not the case. Life happens, right? Yeah. And this wonderful boss that she started out with unexpectedly leaves the company for personal reasons. Mm. And he's in the highest position at this college. He's the chancellor. So now Ebony finds herself reporting to a new chancellor. And this new chancellor, Miss Kelly, is absolutely horrific. And it's this new chancellor that starts the bullying trend that follows Ebony for the next five years of her employment. So for starters, you know, she she does uh, something to dehumanize Ebony. She gives her the nickname Agony. Now, She's calling her agony, refuses to call her by her real name. And and that's the first act, like I said, in dehumanizing Ebony. Mm -hmm. Because not only is this chancellor calling her agony, uh, but a lot of other people are too, because this chancellor is the leader and these people are following her actions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, after working for Miss Kelly, and, and being subjected to uh, conditions where, you know, in Ebony's words, you know, she was trying to break her like a wild horse she was determined and eager to tame. 
Uh, Miss Kelly uh, tortures her, abuses her, harasses her, but then decides she doesn't want her to report to her anymore. So she demotes her and gives her a salary cut and moves her to the student finance office of this college. Now, Ebony is, you know, she's excited that she still has a job because uh, Miss Kelly was actually on the verge of firing her. But, you know, the fact that she still had a job, um, even though she took a pay cut, she's still excited because even with the pay cut, it's still more money than she's ever made. Yeah. And so yeah. she goes into this new department and she has high hopes because she's gotten away from Miss Kelly. Mm -hmm. But when she goes into this new department, she's targeted again. And like I was telling you, Monica, uh, racism is not a one-time thing for us. You know, if we are victims of racism, we don't get a nice little badge that says, you know, I've been through this, so leave me alone, racist people at the next company or the next department. We don't get a nice little badge. So she is now in another department. She has a new boss who happens to be racist. And he decides to not only target her, but to target the other Black person that's in this department because there are two Black people. And so the way that he targets them is, is uh, it's something you could easily point at and say, okay, what he's doing is racist. He's excluding them from meetings and lunch gatherings. He's bringing in snacks for the department and sharing those snacks with everyone except these two black people. He's requiring these two black people to work the less desirable late shift while everyone else gets to leave home on time. So yeah. those are things that you could easily see. Anyone could easily see these things, mm -hmm. right? But Ebony wanting to uh, make things better for her and Latoya, you know, she decides she's going to try to address the issue with her boss and, and that doesn't work. So then she reads the company policy on discrimination and it says, you know, if you're not comfortable um, coming forward and, and telling what's happening, you can do it anonymously you can use their confidential hotline to you know, report discrimination and the information you provide in your identity is going to be kept confidential. So Ebony, as you can imagine. Yes, I'm already like, this is not confidential. No, <laughs> no, um, not at all. Not I'm at all. smiling, but not smiling in the way that I, you know, like it's just like it, it, it's not gonna happen. It's just no. not gonna happen. So indulge me, keep going. Yes. So she files <laughs> this anonymous discrimination complaint, and she's feeling good that things are going to improve for her and Latoya because, you know, they're going to investigate and, and they're going to keep her identity a secret. So because let's see how much time do we have? We still have a decent amount of time. Um, I would like to just read you an excerpt from my, my book, Hush Money, yeah, and tell you um, what happened after she filed this uh, discrimination complaint anonymously. Let's have at it. It will be okay. amazing having the author reading 
the expert of the book right here. Let's do it because I have I have so much on my mind right now. Like I think I think it might need to be like a part two of these things, but we'll see. Um, I would love it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So this is now uh, the next day after she has made this anonymous phone call to the confidential hotline and reported uh, racial discrimination in the student finance department. Now hindsight is 2020, and looking back, reporting discrimination anonymously was absolutely the wrong thing to do because corporate didn't conduct the investigation themselves like the policy said they would. Instead, they notified Ms. Kelly that an anonymous discrimination complaint was received and instructed her to investigate it. And since it was more important to her to find out who the rat was than to actually conduct an investigation, she used the process of elimination to flesh out the guilty party. She started with LaToya. My heart raced as I watched Miss Kelly go into LaToya's office and walk away with her in tow. About 25 minutes later, LaToya walked back to her office with Miss Kelly following close behind her. And when her teary eyes met mine as I intensely watched from my office, she mouthed the words, I'm sorry. When I read her lips, my heart sank into my stomach and I felt violently ill. Then Miss Kelly went into Malcolm's office and closed the door behind her. For the next 20 minutes, I sat in my office on the verge of vomiting and wishing I was a fly on the wall in Malcolm's office. When Miss Kelly finally came out, she made her way to my desk, and if looks could kill, I would have been dead in my chair. Ebony, a word, she said with a low growl as she turned and walked away. I slowly stood up and began following her. And as I walked, there was no doubt in my mind, I was in deep, deep trouble. Yeah. When we arrived at Miss Kelly's office and walked in, she closed the door behind us and tore into me like a rabid dog before I even had a chance to sit down. After everything I've done for you, after everything I gave you, you air our dirty laundry to corporate. I made you a celebrity. I gave you a career and this is how you repay me. I should have fired you when I had the chance. I I'm sorry, Miss Kelly. I replied as my eyes welled up with tears. Oh, you're sorry, all right, she snarled. Sorry is excuse for an employee I've ever seen and you've committed career suicide. So think about that and get out of my office. Tears flowed freely from my eyes as I left her office and began the long walk of shame back to mine. And as I got closer to the student finance department, I saw Malcolm standing in the entryway and grinning at me like an evil clown. I was emotionally exhausted after the verbal beating I took from Miss Kelly, so I scurried past him, went into my office and closed the door and breathed a sigh of relief because I still had my job and hoped everything would blow over and return to normal in a few days. When I arrived at work the next day, I realized that everything was not going to blow over and return to normal anytime soon. Malcolm was furious when Miss Kelly informed him that I made the anonymous phone call to corporate, so he retaliated against me. He reviewed my completed work and riddled it with errors, making it appear that I was incompetent and putting my job at risk verbally abused me in front of coworkers, called me darky in private, and made me work more late shifts than anyone else. And since he knew my sister was now a student at Dave Run, 
He tampered with her financial aid, which caused a delay in the additional student loan funds she had borrowed to help mom catch up on her car payments, which delayed the stipend check she was supposed to receive and resulted in mom's car being repossessed. Things with Malcolm were so bad that I dreaded coming to work, afraid of the new attacks each day would bring. My job became a living nightmare from which I could not awake, gave me an enormous amount of anxiety and resulted in 40 pounds of weight gain over the next three months due to stress. One afternoon, Malcolm stopped by my office unexpectedly and closed the door. My, how the mighty have fallen, he said with a lighthearted chuckle. The posters of you were pulled down a few minutes ago and your face is being removed from all marketing material as we speak. So guess what? No more celebrity ebony. Then he shrugged his shoulders and cheerfully said, oh well, ready to quit yet, Darkie? I didn't say a word. I just stared at my computer screen and feverishly typed while he stood in front of my desk glaring at me. He glared at me for about a minute and then out of nowhere busted out laughing. He laughed so hard he almost choked on his own spit. As he stood in front of my desk pointing at me and laughing, I wanted to cry, but managed to hold the tears back long enough for him to get the hell out of my office. Then I cried. I felt so alone and there was no one I could turn to for help because Miss Kelly retaliated against me too. She spread vicious rumors about me across the campus and mockingly labeled me as the girl who cried racism. And because she was the chancellor and her words carried a huge amount of weight, she transformed me from the racial discrimination victim that I was into a social outcast. And no one, not even Latoya, wanted to talk to me, let alone be seen with me. And I didn't dare file another discrimination complaint. I was too afraid of being fired or making matters worse. As I sat at my desk crying, I knew it was just a matter of time before Malcolm unjustly fired me or I buckled under the pressure of his hate and resigned. I also knew that no matter which method brought about the loss of my job, the end result would still be the same. Without my job, I would go spiraling back into poverty and the thought terrified me. As I continued worrying about my job, my mind began to wander and I started having dark thoughts, very dark thoughts about Malcolm and what I would do if I ever saw him alone in a dark alley with no witnesses and no cameras. I beat the living shit out of him, stab him a few times with a picture knife, then force feed him my shit until he gagged and begged for mercy. And if he tried to crawl away as he bled, I'd pull out my gun and shoot him. Yes, just shoot him. Or should I stab him again? Stab him or shoot him? Shoot him or stab him? Stab him or shoot him? Whew. All right. I think everyone needs to like take a moment, take a breather and absorb all of that. You know, I know there is a lot to your story, but I want to pause here and talk about the importance of mental health due to, due to untargeted racism. I am not dark like you, 
I do come from a black mother. I am Puerto Rican. Uh, my dad looks like he's Irish. My mom looks like she's black. Like we all have different colors in our family. Like we have redheads and we have, you know, like, you know, black folks. Like, uh, and I grew up in Puerto Rico, which I didn't know what racism was until I was age 20 that I moved to Massachusetts. Wow. wow. I was totally naive to the word racist. That never was in my vocabulary. We've never talked about it. Um, it was, you know, yeah, we, 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 you know, we learn history. Um, and, but that didn't apply to us. Like we live in a small island and we are, we're happy. Like it doesn't matter how you look like, like we are all from here. It doesn't matter. Right. So when moving here, it was a really big shock. And I remember- well, especially in Massachusetts, because there's yeah. so much on the news about things going on in Massachusetts. Yes, right. That is just unbelievable. Yes. So imagine a 20 year old completely naive 20 year old um, on that front end, right? Like I, I graduated college. I, you know, I had my degree. I had my work experience. I was pretty bright. And I, I, I hope I still am bright in certain aspects of life, right? But in the aspects of racism, I was totally naive, right? And, you know, I, I went to bilingual school my entire life. Like I didn't, I, I had great grades. Um, I speak three languages. I'm really cool, right? Like right. I'm good, right. you know, I'm moving and I'm making something better of myself. Right. And when I got here, um, I actually got here and I already had a job. I did my interview over the phone. Like I, I, I enter in the medical field, um, to work in a lab because I had okay. a, a, I had a bachelor's degree on, um, uh, medical, uh, medical billing, medical and in uh, IT, right? Like that was my, that was my background in my, my, how you call it? My internship was with labs. I worked at labs, like, you know, testing, uh, creating some coding for like the labs and stuff like that. And I was like, I want to work in a lab. And I, I got my job in the lab here and um, it was great. I met really good people, but mm -hmm. they were all white folks. Like I was the only person. I mean, I'm a little bit more clear now, but like I came with my tan from Puerto Rico. Okay. okay. Uh, and it wasn't so much about the color of my skin or, you know, where I came from. Yes. It was more about my accent because I have a very strong accent. And yes. I pronounce, you know, certain words uh, stronger than others because my first language is Spanish. And in Spanish, we have, you know, a couple additional letters into our vocabulary that are not utilized here. Hence, you know, I confuse a lot with the Y's with my eyes. Um, yes. We have a double L, which confuses with the Y here. Um, okay. And it's a total different, you know, it doesn't matter if you come to Massachusetts or you go to Texas or you go to California, all the different English dialects that are spoken throughout the United States are not the literature English I learned in school down there, right? Right, right. 
So it took me a little while to understand, you know, why do you speak with like, you know, the A at the end of every word? <laughs> I, I didn't speak like that. It was a little bit different. Now I think I'm more uh, Bostonian than, than, than what I'm Puerto Rican, but you know, in terms of like how I speak, um, but I was targeted for that. I, was I believe you. I believe it, you. It was so frustrating. But again, you know, the naive in me uh, was like, okay, maybe they just don't understand what I'm saying. So I just have to, you know, say it again. Right. But more frequently, I started to notice that uh, they'll come to me. That it was like two ladies. It was two ladies specifically. It was nobody else. I had mm -hmm. a great, a great boss, um, Mr. Jerry. I don't know if he... I don't know where he is. I, it's been too many years, but you know, mm -hmm. he was fantastic. Yes. Uh, but these two ladies um, will come to me and you know, they'll, they'll say to me, can you speak a little bit more slowly? I don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, right? And I, I, didn't, I didn't think anything of that until it became repetitive, right? right. Until it became repetitive. Um, and then uh, I was comma happy. Like I, I will write and I will put a lot of commas and like, you know, uh -huh. stuff like that. And yes. they'll pick on me like that way. Until That's one horrible. day, uh, until one day, uh, there was this comment made about how I shouldn't be here because, you know, I was pouring and it was actually taking longer to teach me how to do things than it will take someone to take, you know, it will take them to wow. someone locally, right? That is horrible. Like, I don't have a visa. Like I, I, I'm, I'm an American. I just grew up. Wow. Um, so that was the first time that I experienced what it's called racism. But I do remember. Mm -hmm. Home. I was I had an hour commute um, and I remember coming home and my boyfriend at that time who's now my husband I was like hey um, this happened at work today I, I, I don't know why I don't know how to handle it like you know right. how can I and the, the whole thing for me was like how can I make them like me right like, I, I, I really want to work here and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And I remember my husband had to sit me down like a seven-year-old mm -hmm. and explain to me why that was happening. Um, the next step that I took was to call my dad and tell him I want to go back home. Right. Because you just feel so defeated. You feel yes. so unaccepted. So, you know, I think everyone experience different levels of racism mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. life you know um you know it, it as a woman is worst you know i've right. been told i've been told many times um you're brilliant but you are doing too much you know self uh what was what was the most recent one that i heard um oh you're brilliant um but you're doing too much self-promotion you should be doing that more for me than you do it for yourself wow. I was like what do you mean <laughs> crazy 
to yield me to, you know, leave that job, right? So um, I think as we grow as individuals and we become more conscious about, you know, how as a human can you have this way of thinking or approach towards other people? We're all people. Right. Why? Why do you have to take this approach? It doesn't matter. We're all people. When you die, you're bones, just like me. It doesn't well, matter, yeah. if you know, red, white, black. Mm-hmm. We're all bones at the end of the day. So That's I, right. you know, I moved here 17 years ago mm-hmm. and I still don't understand why right. this is happening. So I, love having these conversations with people like yourself because I still feel that I am so ignorant to so many things still and I'm not doing enough right and Mm -hmm. like I have a 10 year old daughter what do I need to do to avoid you know to avoid her from suffering from all these things that are happening nowadays that mm-hmm. we thought it were all under wraps and it's it's worse than ever. So- well, and you bring up such valid points, Monica. And, um, you know, I, I want to just touch on two things that you said. So you said that when you moved to the United States, you know, these people targeted you because of the way you speak. They didn't like the way you spoke, right? Mm-hmm. So in my case, as a Black woman, You know, these same people target me for the way I speak, but guess what they tell me? You sound white. How did you learn to speak so articulately? Mm, Yeah. It's never good enough. It's never never, good enough. You're never good enough. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I want to talk about is um, why my book, Hush Money, how one woman proved systemic racism in her workplace and kept her job. I want to talk about why this book, this book that I wrote with my daughters, we self-published. We didn't have a publisher. We wrote it because we were suffering. We were in pain. Mm -hmm. This was a way to take our pain and release it, put it into a book and share with the world. This book I started selling from the trunk of my car about five months ago. Mm-hmm. And today, Monica, today, I, I mean, it just blows my mind. This little book that I wrote from a place of, place of pain sold from the trunk of my car. As of today, it is an international award-winning book. It is spreading not only in the United States, but around the world. It's the recipient of the reader's favorite uh, gold medal for social issues novels. It's on Amazon's bestsellers list. Um, As of today, we have 124 reviews on Amazon with a five-star rating. Mm-hmm. And on Goodreads, we are number one against a multitude of categories. We are number one in best eye-opening African-American women's fiction, uh, best eye-opening books to increase your social awareness on uh, justice and racism, uh, yeah. number one in books starring a 
uh, Black female protagonist, uh, number one in books with a fresh speaker, uh, number one in, in contemporary women's fiction. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And even across the Christian platform, we're number nine out of thousands of books on findthisbest.com for best African-American Christian fiction. You know, Hashemani tells a story about one woman and her experiences with racism in the workplace here in America. Yeah. But we have readers. I mean, Monica, we have readers in Canada, United Kingdom, Finland, Switzerland, Ireland, um, I mean, Egypt, Israel, Uganda, Nigeria. And guess what happened just Saturday night? Saturday night, I get a message on LinkedIn from a person. I, I have to keep this person's identity anonymous. Yeah. From a person in Canada who sends me a message and I put it out on, on LinkedIn full blast, but I kept their uh, identity anonymous telling me that in Canada, the employers are trolling their Black and Indigenous employees LinkedIn. And anyone that they spot who has read Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job, or showed support for it, liked it, or commented it, these employers are now targeting those people and victimizing them on their jobs, well, which it's is a another very, form of covert racism. It's a very controversial topic, right? Because, you know, the thing is, you know, for me, it's not, and everybody has their own points of view. And I want to, you know, make sure that, you know, everybody knows we respect you all. Mm -hmm. um, and my partner is, is, is white. I, I have a bunch of amazing, white friends but it's not about you know racism from white to black or you know right. white to puerto rican it's just the the act of racism overall right and right. it's such a controversial topic because as you you know spend your reach and mm -hmm. i have a lot of international friends you know from vietnam i haven't i have friends from pakistan i have friends from india i have friends you know very international here yes mm -hmm. i have friends from everywhere we yes. all experience the same thing we, we all do. do you come from china you come from like you know uh philippines you come from pakistan you come from anywhere mm -hmm. you well, are in it and, and 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 they don't like you because you're coming here to take what it belongs to them and that's, that's just right. the view that's just that's the view the, the closed view, right? So mm -hmm. what makes me upset, and I'm sorry, I get very fired up about this. I love we're having this conversation. Me I think too. what gets me super fire up is that, you know, and you know, you're a Christian individual. I am too. We all made, you know, uh, we all serve a purpose here. We yes. all here to serve a purpose. Yes. We don't know what that purpose is, but your right. purpose was to shake it, right? You, yes. you have to shake it in order to create awareness. And regardless, if you live along for long enough to see mm -hmm. it flourish, your purpose is to bring that awareness to light, right? 
just like I have made it my purpose to create this platform to elevate voices that I don't know, maybe one person is listening to it, but at least mm -hmm. I can make a difference to that person. We That's all right. serve a purpose. I just don't don't understand why you have to harm people because well, they think their purpose. Well, and I'll tell you, Monica. So um, when my daughters and I wrote Hush Money, we wrote it with three goals in mind, okay? Um, three goals. Number one, for the person of color who is currently experiencing racism in the workplace, and they're on that ledge, you know, they're on that cliff, they're in despair, they're about to lose everything. Hush money is really, I mean, if you look at the reviews on Amazon, you know, like I said, we have 124 reviews with a five-star rating. The people of color who have posted reviews, their, their theme is, is the same. They see hush money as their survival guide because not only do you get to see what happens with Ebony over this five-year period, all the horrific uh, events that she suffered, the racial trauma that she experienced, but you get to see all the mistakes she made, but then you get to see what she did to get it right yeah. and how she was able to develop strategies. And she lays those strategies out in this book in vivid color on how she was able to fight back against her organization and bring it to its knees. So yeah. you get to yeah. see all that. So for the person experiencing racism, this is the perfect book for you to teach you how to fight back and survive it. Yeah. But interestingly enough, you know, we have racial discrimination victims contacting me every single day, but we also have allies. There are so many amazing white people who are reading Hush Money and writing powerful reviews about what they learned, Monica. Um, I'll give you an example. There was a white woman by the name of Amy who posted a review about two weeks ago on Amazon. She gave it five stars and she admitted that she was a former white supremacist. She mm -hmm. said that she, she wanted to increase her education on racism. And so she bought Hush Money as part of her journey to do that. She said she had become comfortable with her level of, uh, of education on racism and her role in white supremacy until she picked up my book. When she read Hush Money, her eyes were opened. And she mm -hmm. said in her review that she became aware of things that we go through as people of color, uh, the racism that we deal with, things that she could not have learned on her own. Right. She needed this book to walk her through it. And so that's what you are. If you are an ally who wants to help us fight racism, make a better world for all of us to enjoy. But, you know, people are telling you, you're white. You don't understand what we're going through. You can't help us because you don't feel that you've never been through it. Mm -hmm. Well, hush money actually changes that because for those white allies who who know that racism is wrong, who want to help, but because they never experienced it, they, they don't feel it the way that we do. 
hush money takes that person who wants to be an ally. It puts them into the shoes of Ebony. So when you are walking through the vivid scenarios in her five-year journey, you feel racism as if it's happening to you or someone close to you. And by the time you come out of that book, your eyes are opened. Your perception is forever changed. I, I love that you touch base on how to, right? Because there is a lot of talk about, you know, what is happening, but very minimal talk about like how to do this, right? Or guidance on how to uh, prevent, you know, certain things or actually, you know, just manage the the situation, right? So I am really glad that you give that perspective there. I, I work in the insurance industry, which is a very, very white dominated industry, but I was so happy when, you know, a few, uh, I think it was a month ago, uh, we went to, you know, an annual conference and they spoke about, you know, how the ENI is going to be so important moving forward. Um, and they not only talked about the why, but they actually showed the strategies that they were going to take in order to, you know, make sure that we reach a little bit more of the gap and we kind of like, you know, make it equal for everyone within the industry. But, you know, it is initiatives like that and strategies like that that are going to get us there. You know, us sitting around chatting about it, all oh, this happened to me. It's not enough. You have to go out there and you have to, one, tell your story. Second, do something with your story. And third, teach something with your story. That's right. help with your story, right? Well, and and you brought up uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So let me just talk a little bit about that. Um, Monica, I... I have nothing against diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. They are well-intentioned, but I also have to be a realist and say that, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings have been around for decades. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when it comes to racism in the workplace, they haven't been as effective as they can be because, you know, if you have somebody on your team in your job, working for your company that is a racist and they are covertly, you know, hiddenly oppressing and uh, discriminating against people on your staff. And they believe in their heart and in their soul that what they're doing is, is perfectly okay. An annual DEI training is not going to change their heart and mind. Oh, not at all. Not at but all. What, But what you can do to to really have a strong impact and give that racist person who's on your staff, who's hiddenly, covertly discriminating, you can give them pause and stop them in their tracks. How? By keeping your diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, but adding this book as a component of that. And you and your senior management teams and your leadership teams, you read the books and you discuss these books in depth because there's a lot for employers and management teams to learn. 
And if you do have someone on your management team or in a leadership position who is covertly discriminating and you give them this book and they're reading it and discussing it with your management team, they're going to realize very quickly the strategies that Mm -hmm. their black and brown employees are learning through this book and are implementing unbeknownst to you, the racist. So Mm -hmm. if you are covertly discriminating, you may be doing it against someone who's read this book and is behind the scenes implementing these strategies. That's why the employers in Canada don't want their employees reading this book because it teaches them how to fight back. Yeah. So as an employer, if you, instead of trying to keep your employees from not reading it, if you embrace this book and give it to your management team and say, guys, this is what your employees are reading and they're learning how to fight you back. You, the racist, may end up the one at risk of having your career derailed because of what your employees are learning by reading this book. Well, not only that, like you need to, diversify your mm-hmm. your corporation your small business whatever it is that you have you mm-hmm. have to diversify it diversify it too diversification mm-hmm. on not just people but also okay. skills backgrounds it's what closes that gap you know Absolutely. it is it is not just about training you know or the eni policy I totally agree with you on that 100%. It's one thing of having it and another one exercising it, right? So it takes a lot more than that. You know, there's different layers and different steps that you need as as a corporation, as an employer to take in order to close that gap. And, you know, as an owner, maybe you, you're not that person, but the, the people that you surround yourself with need to think and act the same way as you, right? So it is extremely important for when you're betting who to bring in that Mm -hmm. they're actually, you know, that there is is that truthful manner of behavior that you're hiring upon. I think, you know, we we focus too too much on skill and we forget Mm -hmm aspect of things Um, and as as we are as a society right now I think we should focus more on people and less than skill because a skill can be taught (laughs) I agree I agree (laughs) Uh, kindness kindness cannot kindness Mm -hmm. cannot and um, I think you know there is so much power on diversification and we all have to, you know, little, I mean, we don't have enough hours on the day to talk about this, of course, but there is so many things that we could be doing to promote a better, more inclusive work uh, and world out there. It's not just work. It's everywhere. Right. It's, it's everywhere. everywhere. Um, yes. So I, I really appreciate Jackie, you coming here. I will love once I read the book, because this, this happened very quickly for us. Yes, <laughs> I didn't have yes it time, did. And I didn't have time to read the, the book is on the mail. Um, yes. But once I, I read the book, I will love to come back and have a conversation about implementation, 
you know, strategy and how can we help others, um, you know, anything that we learn from the book and maybe just um, skin it a little bit and bring it, bring it to, you know, bring it to the audience and, and kind of engage. Maybe we can do a live, something like that. I don't know, but we really need to have that conversation after I read that book. I would love that. Absolutely. Just let me know when and I'm there. And uh, Monica, before we end, if I might just tell your audience one more time, you know, my book is Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. You can buy this anywhere books are sold, but I think you'll get the best deal on Amazon right now. Um, So you can get this book directly from Amazon. Um, If you want to do what a lot of other people do and you want an autographed book from me, you can DM me on LinkedIn. Um, My name is Jackie, J-A-C-Q-U-I-E, Abram, A-B-R-A-M. DM me on LinkedIn and request an autographed book. Um, The autographed books are $20 uh, and that includes shipping in the U.S. And you can pay with Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. So again, you know, if you support me, I will be thrilled. You, your eyes will be open no matter who you are. And you will be helping this woman on her road to healing uh, from racial trauma that I suffered, um, Mm -hmm. wrote this book and sold it from the trunk of my car to help others not suffer the same fate that I did. Thank you for being here today, Jackie. But before we go, I have a few questions for you. What does transcending means to you? Okay, so when I think of transcending, I think of being lifted up, you know, being elevated, increasing your being. So whether that's through knowledge, whether that's through, you know, um, anything that you do that lifts you up and carries you to that next level. Amazing, amazing. Who is a woman that had a big influence of who you are today or a woman that you look up to? Um, I would say that that is my mom. Uh, She's no longer with us, but my mom was just absolutely a spectacular woman, Um, a woman full of such courage, strength, and grace, and who herself uh, went through just horrific racism as a a dark-skinned woman, Um, but who you know, never let it get to the point where she, you know, she, she couldn't handle it. She always looked out for us. She was a single mom, you know, with uh, six kids and just a, a, a pillar of strength. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Now, what's your favorite food? (laughs) Oh, you know, I could name all sorts of things, but I would have to say probably pizza. Okay. Pizza is my enemy. I just want to say, you know, um, I used to be able to Mm -hmm. eat it and, you know, not have it affect me. But as I've gotten older, you know, I'm in my fifties now. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, So the effects of pizza on me are not, uh, not what you want to see. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. That is so funny. 
Uh, we love pizza too. We have pizza at least once a week here. Um, yes. Because, you know, it's easy. But my, my to go is margarita pizza. Oh, I really okay. That's really good. Okay. Like my husband is pepperoni, my daughter is cheese, and I'm margarita. So we order mm -hmm. like all of them and then we have food for like two days. <laughs> but oh, I agree with delicious. you. After yes. you, you turn a certain page, like oh, all yes. that stays. It doesn't That's go right. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, not only can you not eat the food you once loved, but you start <laughs> developing all these weird allergies. And I'm like, where yes. did this come from? <laughs> That is so funny. It's not funny, but it's funny. Um, uh, that's amazing. So, you know, again, thank you for being here. Yes. Look out for, you know, part two, because it's coming. Um, I think we need to continue having the conversation. But most of all, thank you for saying yes. Not a lot of, um, you know, people say yes to have difficult conversations or to a stranger like me. Yes. Um, yes. But you know, I, I I am a true believer of destiny and I I I can spot a good person when I see it. So thank you. thank you for being here, you know, giving us your perspective, writing that book because I think you know it's necessary. And we'll see you again in a, in a week or two. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Monica. You're very welcome. Have an amazing day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Life is meant to be fun You're not hurting anyone Nobody loses Let the music make you free Be what you wanna be Make no excuses I appreciate you listening today Remember that it is your reaction to adversity No adversity itself That determines how your life story will develop now it is the time to do something meaningful and impactful with your story. Help empower others or empower yourself to break that glass ceiling that holds you back. Don't forget to visit our website to learn more about our guests from today and connect with us on LinkedIn and Instagram. My name is Monica Duani and I cannot wait to see you transcend. Oh.